0: There are no smoother tongues on the planet than the tongues of false teachers. But if you buy what they're selling, if you believe their words, those words will come with a soul-damning poison administered to your heart.
1: Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Hello, I'm Bill Wright. On today's program, Tom continues his current series titled, Not Even One. Last time we looked at the heart of Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 18. Tom looked at the biblical evidence for man's depravity as presented by the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Romans. And the verdict is in. All of humanity is desperately sinful until God's work of regeneration and redemption comes into play. And today, Tom will examine a few ways the scripture invites you to measure the depth of your depravity, to hold the mirror of the gospel up to your own soul. The question the scriptures will ask of you is this, what condition is your soul in? Let's join Tom Pennington to find out more here on The Word Unleashed.
0: Well, I invite you to turn with me again to Romans chapter 3. In Romans 3, Paul comes to the end of his universal indictment of mankind. He provides us here with a sort of sweeping summary of mankind's universal and total depravity. He paints really a very disturbing portrait of every one of us apart from Christ, Every man and every woman. His goal here is to show that mankind as a whole and each of us individually desperately needs the gospel. We need the good news that God forgives sins because of the life and the death of his son for those who will repent and believe. Let me read it for you again. Romans chapter 3 beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave, with their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths, and the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes." Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. For through the law comes the knowledge of sin. This passage, as I pointed out to you, is one of the most important in all of the Bible. Because it describes and it proves from the Scripture, from the Hebrew Old Testament, the moral corruption that theologians call depravity. We learn from this passage that human depravity affects the entire race. It is universal in its scope. And it affects every part of every person who is a part of the human race, meaning it is total in its effect on the human soul. Now, we began to study this paragraph by considering the formal indictment of man's depravity. Paul begins in verse 9 with this formal indictment. Notice what he writes. What then are we, that is, are are we Christians better than by nature than everyone else, than all the people that I've indicted so far in this letter? He says, verse 9, not at all. For we've already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. It is complete and universal. Here in Paul's own summary of what he's written so far in his letter to the Romans, he says, What I have done so far is to make a formal indictment that all humanity is legally guilty. Are all under sin. That is, all people live in the realm of sin are involved in the practice of sin, are under the power of sin, bear the legal guilt of sin, and will someday face the penalty for sin. Now, last time we studied Romans together, we began to examine the second part of this paragraph and what is really the heart of Paul's argument. Having seen the formal indictment, we moved on to look at the biblical evidence for man's depravity. This is in verses 10 to 18. Paul here introduces biblical proof that all men are under sin, as he said in his indictment. Notice verse 10, as it is written. He's going to quote from the Old Testament. In fact, verses 10 through 18 consist entirely of quotes from the Hebrew Old Testament, from seven different Old Testament passages. And Paul intentionally chose passages from the Old Testament, some of which relate to Jews and some of which relate to Gentiles. And by doing that, he proves the universal nature of depravity from the Scripture. And he paints an awful portrait of every sinner. So understand then that these verses we've just read together describe every single human being as he or she is born into this world unless... God has subsequently changed their heart through the gospel. This is a description of every fallen human being who has not come to faith in Jesus Christ. Or I could put it this way. It is a portrait from God's perspective of you if you have not repented of your sins and put your faith in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. Now Paul begins the biblical evidence here with a summary a sort of summary statement of depravity. Notice verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. That is an overarching summation of the human condition. The Greek word translated righteous means simply to conform to a standard. Paul is saying here that apart from justifying grace, not one person who has ever lived has met God's standard. Our Lord Jesus Christ being, of course, the one exception. He himself said in Mark 10 verse 18, no one is good except God alone. No one. How do we summarize our sinful condition? Not a single one of us has met God's standard. Now, having summarized our condition in in verse 10, Paul proceeds in verses 11 to 17 to outline the depth of that depravity. Through a series of Old Testament references, we learn just how profoundly sin has affected all of us. Depravity has caused us all to have, first of all, darkened minds. Notice verse 11, there is none who understands. In other words, sinners, apart from divine grace, fail to understand anything that is spiritually true. They don't understand things that are true about God. They don't understand their own lost and desperate condition. They don't understand how they can be made right with God. They don't understand darkened minds. Our depravity also includes enslaved wills. Verse 11 goes on to say, There is none who seeks for God. None, not one. Paul's point is that our wills are corrupt. As we saw last week, we have a free will. If by that you mean we make real choices. But if by that you mean we are able to choose good and God as well as sin, we don't have a free will because our wills are corrupt. Here Paul says, none seeks God. Unbelievers do not seek out God, they do not desire to know the true God, they do not worship the true God, they do not enjoy the true God, and they refuse to seek the glory of God because their wills are enslaved. Thirdly, depravity produces rebellious lifestyles. Notice verse 12, all, there again is that, that comprehensive statement, all have turned aside Together, they have become useless. Here, we're talking about the the direction of our lives. Paul says, all human beings have left the God-ordained path. That is what God has prescribed for the patterns of our behavior, both in his word and in our consciences. We've left that path, and instead, as Isaiah puts it, we have each turned to his own way. And tragically, when that happened, we became, notice verse 12 says, useless. We became completely useless for anything that God designed us to be. We are no longer of use to God. We're no longer of use to others. We're no longer even of use to ourselves. Now that brings us to where we've covered so far. Today, we come to a fourth way that we can measure the depth of our depravity. Paul says we can do so by our sinful behavior. Notice verse 12 goes on to say, There is none who does good, there is not even one. This is a quote from Psalm 53, 1. And he's simply referring here to the daily practice of our actions. This is our behavior. None who does good. The word for good here is not the normal New Testament word. Instead, it's a word Which refers to that which is beneficial or useful. He's just said we are useless, and now he says, therefore, we don't do things that are beneficial or useful to God or to others. There is none who, as a daily practice, does what is good, not even one. I am not the exception to this. You are not the exception. There are no exceptions. Ecclesiastes 7 20, indeed, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and who never sins. Now, don't misunderstand the Apostle Paul. He's not saying that we don't do things that meet the human standard of goodness. Obviously, we do, and, and we note this in others. Somebody will do something, and we'll say, there's a good man, there's a good woman. What we mean by that is they've met the human standard of goodness. That's not what Paul is talking about here. Instead, he means no one does what meets God's standard of goodness. And therefore, no one achieves a personal standing of righteous before God. This is what the Scriptures teach. In fact, one of the most familiar Old Testament passages makes this very point. Isaiah 64, 6. It says, all of us, again, that comprehensive idea every single one of us, all of us have become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds. Now notice he doesn't say our sins. Our righteous deeds. In other words, your shining moment, your best moral choice. When someone came along and said, good job, you're a good man, you're a good woman, I'm so proud of what you did, I want to imitate what you did. All our righteous deeds are like a filthy garment before God. They're like menstruous rags. He goes on to say, and our iniquities take us away. You see, our problem is our iniquities, our sins, yes, but equally our problem is our righteous deeds, which are like menstruous rags in the sight of God. Martin Luther writes, even if such transgressors do good outwardly, They do not do it with sincerity, for they do not seek God in it, but their own glory gain or at least freedom from punishment. On the other hand, those who in true faith seek after God do good from a thankful and joyful heart solely for God's sake. But that is the work of divine grace and not of nature. In other words, if you do good out of gratitude for God, out of a desire to exalt God, and that's your only motivation, then that's a work of grace that God has done in your heart, because that's not by nature. Now, don't miss what Paul is saying here in verse 12. He's saying, by God's perfect perception of reality, you understand, God sees things as they really are. By God's perfect perception of reality, not one human being practices righteousness. Not one human being exhibits daily behavior that meets God's perfect standard. You see, before Christ, most of us here are believers in Christ. Before Christ, we chose one of two paths. Either we chose a a path of rebellion and sin, and we lived in rebellion, open rebellion and sin... There are many here who that was true of their life before Christ. Or, for others of us, before Christ, we chose the, uh, the life of a good moral person. From a human perspective, we were basically honest and moral and generous. But regardless of which path we may have chosen in our rebellion against the true God, we all still came under Paul's indictment here, no one does good, not even God one. Our sinful behavior is a reflection of the depravity of our hearts. As Paul continues to trace the depth of our depravity, he moves next to what we could call our toxic speech. Toxic speech. Now, before I read these verses, let me read you a quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones that just gripped me. Lloyd-Jones writes this, "'Are you ready?' To hold before you now the most terrifying mirror that you have ever looked into in your life. Here is the mirror. Sin, as it shows itself in our words. How terrible, how graphic is this description? He's absolutely right. Look at verses 13 and 14. Here's our toxic speech apart from Christ. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues, they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Now, in those two verses, notice Paul refers to the four primary parts of the human body responsible for producing speech the larynx, the tongue, the lips, and the mouth. And he says, they've all been corrupted. Now, before we look at this together, let me ask you a really important question. Why did Paul choose this? Why, with all of the categories of sin, Paul could have chosen to demonstrate human depravity, to prove human depravity, why would he choose our words? I mean, after all, when we think of our speech, that's sort of at a lower level of sin. It's not quite as bad as some of the things that are out there. Well, I can tell you why. There's a very important reason why Paul chose this. Because if he had chosen any other category of sin, there might be some of us sitting here today who would go, whew, that's not me. But by choosing our speech, not one of us can dodge or deny this indictment. Nowhere is universal human sinfulness more obvious or more evident than in the words that come pouring out of our mouths. In these verses, Paul uses some very colorful images from the Old Testament to point out some serious problems with our toxic speech. Notice the first serious problem is that our words reveal the decay and death in our hearts our words reveal the decay and death that is in our hearts. Verse 13, their throat is an open grave. This specific quote is from Psalm 5, verse 9. And in the original language here in the, in the New Testament Greek text, there is an unusual expression. Let me translate it for you literally, and I think you'll see what I mean. I could translate this this way. Their throat is a having-been-opened grave. That's a powerful figure of speech. It pictures the throat, an organ of speech, as always perpetually open. In other words, we're always talking. And out of that always-open throat streams decay and death. In other words, it reveals the grave or the tomb, which is the human heart. You see, Paul compares human speech here to what you would discover if you were to open a grave in which a body has been decaying for several weeks, pull the cover off of that grave, and out of it comes an indescribable odor of decay and death that is completely offensive. Paul says that is the condition of the speech and ultimately of the heart of of an unredeemed man. Paul's point is that our words reveal the corruption that is within our hearts. Our words are like the fumes that come out of the grave, which is our hearts. Robert Haldane, a great commentator in the book of Romans, writes this, What proceeds out of their mouth is infected and putrid. And as the odor or fumes from a grave prove the corruption within, so it is with the corrupt conversation of sinners. And there's a whole lot of evidence because we talk a lot. This week I read uh, an article from ABC News about a study back in 2007. This is what the article says. Using digital voice recorders over an eight-year period... Researchers at the University of Arizona studied how many words hundreds of college students spoke. How many words do we speak each day? What they found was that on average, the students spoke 16,000 words a day. That's essentially The average of what you and I as human beings speak now if you do the math and you work that out over an average 75 year lifespan accounting obviously for some early years when you don't speak in the end in a lifetime we will speak over 430 million words the remarkable thing about all those words is that taken together they reveal our hearts They reveal what's inside. This is what our Lord taught in a number of places. In Matthew chapter 15, verse 18, Jesus said this, The things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. You know, sometimes we'll say something and we'll realize, whoops, that was probably not what I should have said. That that betrayed something I'm thinking. That hurt somebody. And it, it showed me for who I am. And we'll say, I didn't mean that. Jesus isn't buying that. He says the words that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart. In Luke 6, verse 45, again talking about speech, he says the good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth what's good, and the evil man out of the evil treasure of his heart brings forth what is evil. And here's Jesus' conclusion, for his mouth speaks from that which fills his heart. Now, this is incredible insight. It means if you can look objectively at the words that come out of your mouth, not in a given moment, but in a, in a period of life, you have a perfect reflection of your heart. Let me show you how this works, how our words reveal our hearts. Let me give you several examples. If your words are always filled with the negative side of life, If you're always whining and complaining about what you don't have, if you're always wishing for what you don't have, if you're always focusing on what you lack and never rejoicing in what God has provided, then that shows you that you have a discontent, ungrateful heart. If your speech is often filled with angry, hateful words, if you just sort of pour out vitriol all over the people around you, if you're always exploding and out comes this filth, it shows that you have a hate filled heart. If your speech is always bragging and self promotion, or on the other hand, if it's filled with constant criticizing of others, if you're always critiquing other people and somehow they never measure up to your standard, you're always looking down from your high and lofty perch at the the shortcomings of others, it shows that your heart has no humility, that it is a proud heart. If you're always laughing and joking, even about serious things that matter to God, it shows that there's no genuine fear of God in your heart. If you're always talking about materialism, things, if you're, if you're obsessed in your conversation with houses and bigger houses and better cars and, and clothes and jewelry and all the stuff that you can buy and accumulate, then it shows that you have a heart that loves money.
1: That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part five of his series titled Not Even One. Tom will bring you part six next time. Join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at the wordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory.